Good morning, gentlemen. We are studying the fifth of five sermons in Matthew, the teachings of Jesus, which are meant to be used to disciple people. Uh, because as we go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that he has commanded us, these are the all things we believe that Matthew was talking about or that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 28. Uh, so it's important that we think about the end of time, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and live in light of that. It makes all the difference in the world. And uh, a secularist is a person who believes in this world. That's what the, secular, the name secular means, this world. He believes in this world only. Doesn't see anything beyond this world. Everything he manages about his life is managed with respect to getting things done in view of this world only. The believer in Jesus Christ is a different man. He is not a secularist. He believes in this world, but he believes in the next world. And the next world will endure forever and ever and ever, and this world has a limited amount of time. So we manage the things in this short period of time in view of e eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. That is one of the big differences between someone who's been converted and someone who has not been converted. And so it makes all the difference that we believe what we were just singing. Uh, his kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. And then we went on to sing in that fifth stanza, a rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. So he's going to come and he's going to take us up. Sounds like a fairy tale. And unbelievers think it is a fairy tale. And they live as though it's not true. But the believer believes that. That's what makes him a believer. He believes the core, essential doctrines of the Scriptures. And that is a core doctrine. As we've said earlier, in any list you want to see of things that are essential to the Christian faith, you can take, for example, in, the, in our denomination, uh, we have a document called The Essentials of Our Faith. And you'll find the second coming of Christ and the end of the world and the new heavens and the new earth to be essential. If you look at the National Association of Evangelicals statement, you'll see the same thing. If you look at the old fundamentals in the first part of the 20th century uh, by R.A. Torrey, you'll find the same thing. The return of Christ is one of the five chief essentials of the faith. So that's the reason that it's at the, uh, at the core of our faith is because Jesus put it at the core of our faith and took at least these two chapters to speak about it. That's the reason we're studying it. Now, we've seen already that Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, is divided uh, uh, between verses 1 through uh, 14, which uh, speak largely of the destruction of Jerusalem, and verses 15 and following, which speak largely of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we've seen that Jesus is teaching that the Old Testament church is going to be judged severely and thus will be the destruction of Jerusalem, which will be that final sign of the destruction of the old Jewish ways of relating to God. It wasn't that the Old Testament was wrong. Uh, it's that the ways in which the Old Testament were interpreted by the rabbis were wrong. And the way it's being interpreted today by Jewish rabbis is largely wrong. And Jesus came judging that and bringing in the power of the Holy Spirit to extend His church around the world. We saw the destruction of Jerusalem 
uh, predicted in verses 1 through 14. Uh, we also saw that uh, his coming is clearly predicted in verses 29 through 31. It will bring an end uh, to this world. It will be personal, visible, and glorious, and it will bring salvation for his people. So obviously, is something to which we are to look with eager anticipation. And so our psychological framework, our emotional framework, our spiritual framework is to be eagerly looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that Jesus points that out in this text. When you are longing for his appearing, that will make you ready for his appearing, and it will enable you to live a fruitful life right here. So as we said before, the great Puritan Samuel Rutherford said, that uh, we should live with our uh, hands to the plow, uh, our head in the heavenlies, and our feet firmly planted on the ground. That's the way we live. We're working hard. We're leaning into that plow. We're producing and serving our neighbor. But our head is, is in the heavenlies looking for the return of Christ. That's the way in which the disciple lives. Now let's look at verses 32 through 51. It's a long section today. And we're going to conclude chapter 24 with this. And we'll move into the next part of his teaching, which becomes very graphic and very helpful to us uh, in chapter 25. But let's, uh, let's look, first of all, at verses 32 through 35. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, we see in this section that the weight of Jesus' words is unalterable. The weight of Jesus' words is unalterable. He's saying that his words are very weighty, that... Heaven and earth, the very material world in which we live, will one day burn up. And you'll see that in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's going to burn uh, with fire. But his words will not pass away, even though the heavens and the earth will. His words are vital to us. And uh, uh, he says here that just as you can learn a lesson from the fig tree when it starts to bear fruit, you know that summer is coming. Duh, the dogwoods are here. So springtime is here. You can read the sign of the times. No one walks outside and says, oh, it feels like fall. No, you look around and just intuitively, you know, you've learned to read the times. And he says, likewise, learn to read the, the times that I'm giving you. Now, what are these times he's talking about? Well, in verse 35, he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What things is he talking about? There's a lot of confusion here because it looks like he's just said that Jesus Christ is going to return. He's just been talking about it. And then it looks like he's saying, this is going to happen before this group of people dies. It looks like Jesus is expecting himself to come back and it doesn't happen. Well, scholars, of course, have come up with many interpretations of this. You see some of them uh, in your footnotes in the ESV study Bible, and you can look at those and see if any of them look good to you. But uh, one thing that we need to remember is that this phrase, these things, uh, is an important phrase to keep in mind. Turn back to verse 2 uh, in chapter 24. The disciples um, 
Oh, I'm so, yeah, the disciples are, are looking at the temple, and Jesus says to them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will be, not be thrown down. Okay? Now, verse 2 is talking about what? 70 A.D. Not one stone left upon another. So the judgment upon the Jewish nation and the old distorted Jewish religion is going to be seen at the destruction of the temple. That's what he's talking about in verse 2. Now look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things. It's almost a technical phrase, these things, in chapter 24 of Matthew. When will these things be? And secondly, what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So there are two questions you remember. First of all, when will these things, that is the destruction of the temple, take place? And secondly, when are you coming back and what will be the sign of it? So now Jesus, first of all, talked about these things, verses 1 through 14. And then we get a sort of a mixed amalgam section in there. And then he talks about the coming of Christ. So he's addressing the disciples in the orders, order in which they ask their questions. Now he's switching back to these things. That's what you need to notice in verse 35. He, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this is uh, verse 34. Um, you notice in verse 34, he now refers to these things again. He says, this generation will not pass away. So it seems to me the simplest interpretation of verse 34 is that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about that immediate genealogical generation. Now, there are different ways in which it can be interpreted. You see those in your footnotes. We won't go through them. But it seems to me that's the simplest way to think of it. And he's saying, heaven, then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, boys, you can count on this one. <laughs> Build your life on it. And what he's, what he's saying there to them about the destruction of Jerusalem is true about every word in the Scriptures. Gentlemen, you need to build your life on it. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, has been laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled. A firm foundation. And so often we, we build our lives on the ambitions our daddy wanted for us or that we got in college or some other dream, the American dream we've got out there. It's a wrong foundation that's going to pass away. His words are never going to pass away. The believer in Jesus, he decides right from the beginning, I'm going to build my life on the words of Jesus Christ. Those are going to be the building stones of my life. Precept upon precept, stone upon stone, whether it has to do with the workplace or the family or my sex life or my financial life or my vacation life, everything about me. I'm going to build on the foundation of God's Word. Heaven and earth will pass away. His Word will never pass away. Don't think for a minute that delay in the return of Christ from your perspective means that the whole project has been canceled. Sometimes you think that, you know, if you make an appointment with somebody and then you don't call him the day, and, and, and you, the appointment is for two months out to have lunch, and you don't call him the day before, so often he'll just think, ah, you know, he forgot, or, it, it, you know, he just, it, it, it doesn't matter, we're not going to do it. And so, you know, you're always confirming appointments. Those of you who are, uh, you know, who have clients and patients, you know, retail type, I'm talking about doctors and maybe some lawyers who handle uh, individual clients, uh, you, you're always having your assistant call and confirm the appointment. 
Because if the appointment was made six months ago, they're going to think it just it doesn't count anymore. People are like that. And you know what? You do that with Jesus too. But you make a big mistake if you do that with Dr. Jesus. When he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Count on it. Put it in your calendar. It's there. It's coming. Now, the problem is you don't have a calendar to suit this one because you don't know when it's going to happen. But here's what you do know. It's going to happen. And if you don't build your life on it, you are what the Bible calls a fool. You are building your life on a false foundation. Remember Jesus in the first sermon we studied talks about the wise man and the foolish man. And the wise man is the one who builds on the rock. The foolish man builds on the sand. And sand is not building your life in view of the return of Jesus Christ who's going to judge all things, all nations, all people of all times in every aspect of life. Everything is coming under his judgment. We would be very foolish uh, not to trust the weight of Jesus' words. The weight of Jesus' words is unalterable. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. If you're in Second Presbyterian Church, you say that every week. There's a reason you say it every week because it's very important. And there's a reason we want you to remember that. Monday through Saturday as well as Sunday. We want you to say it every Sunday so that Monday through Saturday you got it in your head. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. All men are like grass. All flesh is like grass. And, and it withers and it passes. And this world will pass. It'll burn. But the word of God will be standing there for all eternity. Jesus is teaching us that when we're, when we're talking about things that seem most remote to us. There's some things in the Christian life that seem very present, very real to us every day. For example, what Jesus had to say in Matthew 18 about relationships and about forgiveness. That's very present with us. We, it's very practical to us. We live it out every day. And we, we can see the foolishness of turning our back on that because life's going to be very different if you don't live in forgiveness and in grace and if you don't resolve your problems in a healthy way with each other, your conflicts. This seems very remote. And so the words are put right here in the place where you might think, oh, you know, that's part of Christian fantasy. That's just something to kind of cheer us up a little bit. Or maybe, depending upon your, your religious instincts, that's something to scare the hell out of us, you know. You might be thinking that. But what Jesus is teaching is this is the consummation of all of history. This is the goal. This is where everything's headed. And we're studying Ephesians chapter 1 on Sunday mornings here at 2nd. And you see in verse 10 the big plan of God to bring everything in unity under Christ. That's the big plan. That's how it's going to happen. That's where the universe is headed. And you want to get in line with that. Live your life in alignment with reality. The weight of Jesus' words is unalterable. Now let's look at verses 36 through 44. Uh, and let's read through that. But... Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, 
For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What we learn in these verses is that the date of Jesus' return is unknowable. Can I say it again? The date of Jesus' return is unknowable. Please tell some of your theological expert friends that who keep giving us these charts that tell us when they know when he's coming. Uh, but notice how Jesus puts it. So you think you've got to figure it out. You know, I've, I've lived long enough now as a Christian to have had about four dates set for us. One was last year. Somebody picked another date last year. It was on billboards everywhere. I don't know who was doing that. But I've, I've had four, I've experienced at least four major public-wide, nationwide announcements that some date was going to be. And let me tell you, they all passed. And somebody needs to be stoned. You know, false prophets are supposed to be stoned. Uh, but I've seen all this come and go. I don't know why people do this. I think it's because they've got a certain religious uh, psychology that works best in emergencies. They, they like to be wound up, you know, and so they get themselves all wound up, and that's the way they operate in, in crisis. Uh, but most of us would prefer not to operate in a crisis like that. We'd like to operate just in, in the basis of reality. But notice what he says in verse 36. If you think you know, well, let me tell you something. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus says even the Son doesn't know. It's amazing that people would look at that verse and still tell us they know when it is. And you get excuses like this. They'll say, well, he says here that we don't know the day and the hour. He doesn't say we don't just, we don't just know the day. Does that make any sense to you? It makes none to me. But that's the way people make all kinds of excuses. Here's what Jesus is saying. In his humanity, and this, of course, blows our minds we can't get our minds around what we call the hypostatic union, the union of deity and humanity in the person of Christ. One person, two natures. Go figure. You know, we have one person, one nature. We can't imagine what it's like to have one person with two natures. Jesus has two natures. And there's, there are times when it gets very, very difficult and impossible for a human being to understand it. But what Jesus is saying that in his humanity, his condescension to be a human being, he has surrendered a certain portion of knowledge that the Father has. You know, if it weren't there, I'd never have said it uh, because that stretches the very understanding that we have of the unity of Christ and deity and humanity. But he says it. I didn't say it. The Father knows. The Son doesn't know. So in his condescension, Jesus has surrendered, in that sense, the access to that knowledge. So he's living among us. Look at this condescension. He's living among us as one who doesn't know when he's coming back. That's amazing. Now, I don't know whether he knows now or not. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine he doesn't know. But I know for sure when he was on the earth, he chose not to know that, to live among us as one who would wait expectantly for his glory to be revealed. It's an amazing statement. But it ought to be clear to us that if he didn't know, we're not going to know. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this would be uh, page 2310. 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, Paul says to the Thessalonians, who, by the way, got really confused about end times things. They also had people who were kind of the uh, emergency types, the hysterics. 
He says to them, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Some of you have seen that happen. And they will not escape. <laughs> it's kind of like you say to your wife on the way to the hospital, uh, she's in labor now, and you say to her, you sure you want to go through with this? Uh, that's what he's saying. You, you will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light. Look at that, brothers. We are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Where do you think Paul gets all this? Right from Matthew 24. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. He's basically saying, for those who just go out and just want to party all the time, get drunk, they're living in the night. If you're living in the day, you want to be sober. Who wants to be drunk when Jesus comes back? I don't. I want to be alert, ready. And I have to say, you know, one, one pleasure of not getting high all the time. I'm just so glad I don't do that because if one of you calls me at 10 o'clock at night with an emergency, I'm ready to go. I'm sober. I'm alert. I'm, I'm on board 24-7. What about you? You know, my, my dad abused alcohol. And so by 6 o'clock in the evening, I didn't really have a sober father to talk to. And I can tell you that makes a big difference. But, you know, when you're a kid, you know, in your teenage years, you got a lot of things you like to talk to your dad about. You can't talk to him because he's not sober. Makes a big difference makes a difference in your home. If you're thinking about, well, I can't wait to get home and get that first martini, man. I'm just, uh, you know, just want to chill out. and just want to turn on the TV and just zone out. And you got four kids in your home. What are you thinking? You're thinking about yourself and zoning out and living in the dark. And I realize the dark has some psychological um, feelings and benefits to it. And zoning out has some benefits to it. I'm all for vacations. I'm all for short zoning outs. You know, if you need to go in the back of your house and get your, collect yourself before you go out and reach, reach humanity, that's fine. But you're there to serve. And you need to be sober and alert to serve people. You need to be sober and alert to serve the Lord. Be ready for Him. Be thinking about Him. That's the whole purpose for being on the planet is to think about Him and to honor Him and serve Him. And it's, hard, it's impossible to do that if you're drunk. So that's the kind of thing that Jesus is saying. Stay awake. Stay alert. Be on the ball. Stay in the game. Uh, because uh, what we need to do, and we see this in verses 36 through 41, is to accept what you don't know. That's what we're talking about. Accept what you don't know. And you don't know when He's coming. So live in the light of His coming at any point. And He uses a wonderful analogy here, doesn't He, in verse 37. He talks about Noah. And He says... <laughs> In Noah, people were just, you know, you can imagine what it was like. You know, this ark was that Noah built was huge. Uh, when we studied Genesis several years ago, we looked at this. I mean, the thing was, 
300 cubits by 50 cubits. <laughs> what, what's a cubit? 18 inches. So what would that be? 450 feet long by 75 feet wide. I believe that's the proportions of a football field, but it's one and a half times the size of a football field, both length and width. That is a big boat, gentlemen, that a man built in his backyard. <laughs> and then it's 45, it's 30 cubits high, so that's 45 feet high. It's five-story building high. This is no, no rowboat, you know, in the back of his yard. This thing's huge. So people were walking by, and of course Noah was 600 years old. It took him a long time to build that boat, you know. So it's in his backyard. He's 600 years old, and everybody's saying, Noah, what you doing back there? You know, and he's just working away on that boat. Noah, that thing's huge. What are you doing with that? You're trying to build a city out there? You're all making fun of him. And Jesus says they just went about their way, just marrying, you know, having parties, having fun, just living life, paying no attention whatsoever to what Noah was paying attention to. And that's just a picture of the way it looks for you. You All this money you give away. What you doing out there? Trying to build a kingdom? Look at the size of the gifts you be. You know what you could do with that money if you gave it, you know, if you just spend it on a nice vacation, you realize how much pleasure you're, you're overlooking there? People make fun of you. They think you really knew what you were doing. And when you remove yourself from some of the human pleasures, well, you know, you only go around once. What are you, some kind of a prude? You know, you just, you're going to get to the end of life and have missed out everything. And they give you all this scorn. At least that's what they're thinking. Usually they won't say it to you. But when it becomes politically correct to say it, believe me, they'll be saying it. And you can see one of the shifts that's been happening in our own culture is people now are saying what they were thinking all along. They wouldn't dare say it. And they're doing what they wanted to do all along, but they wouldn't dare do it. It wasn't politically correct. Now it's politically correct, so they're all, it's like an avalanche. They're all going in that direction. They say the largest growing religious community is the agnostic and the atheist. I don't think so. I think they were always agnostic and atheistic. They just wouldn't say so. And now it's politically correct to say so. So now you're getting 15% of the population. Looks like it's just a huge growing population that's atheistic. No, they were always atheistic. But some of them went to churches and faked it. And now they don't need to fake it anymore. So what you get is living in a world that is hostile to your corny little Christian belief. But your corny little Christian belief happens to be the truth. <laughs> and you're building your life on the sure and certain foundation of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ who said he's going to come back and judge the world. And you're going to be ready for it. Praise the Lord for that. But you accept what you don't know. You don't know when it's going to happen. And he says at one point, um, uh, you know, there will be two men standing there, one in the field, one will be taken and one left. Now, the, the, uh, don't let me offend you too much, but the dispensationalists sometimes will say, there you have it, the rapture, one's taken, one's left. Well, in this text, the one that's taken, if you compare it to Noah and the story there, would be the one who's judged, not the one who's saved. We don't know, but that's, he's not talking about the rapture. He's simply saying one will be judged and one will be left to be saved. And they'll be standing right together in your workplace. You've got Christians and non-Christians. And what we were learning in this text is every human being is going to be judged. And certainly in the church, everyone's going to be judged. And we'll be right together. And we would have assumed we're all in this together. We're not unless we have faith in Jesus Christ and build our life on his words. Uh, this is a little bit nerve-wracking uh, to live in a world when you don't know when the end is going to come. But it's only nerve-wracking if you're not ready. It's nerve-wracking if you're trying to 
wait until the last minute to get ready. It's nerve-wracking if the plane's leaving in an hour and a half and you haven't packed your bags yet. That's nerve-wracking. It's nerve-wracking when you're trying to park your car. You know what I'm talking about. You've been through this. You're trying to get your car parked and get your bags in. You hope you get to the, you know, the registration for you to get your ticket before the computer shuts it down and you, and you can't get to the gate. It's nerve-wracking when you're living like that. But if you're sitting there, you know, working on your computer at the gate, just waiting for the plane to load up, you're not, you're not concerned at all about when the plane leaves. It'll leave, you know, it'll leave when it, pretty close to when it says it's going to leave and you'll get there somehow and you're just working away. Your nerves are fine. And people are living life in a nerve-wracking way. They're trying to get all the evil gusto they can out of this life, time it just right so they're ready for Jesus when he comes, do the few rituals you need to do to kind of, you know, save yourself. And that's nerve-wracking, not knowing when he's coming. But if you know when he's coming, you're a man of peace. You're ready. You know, I told you what Martin Luther said when someone asked him, what would you do if Jesus were coming tonight? Plant a tree. I mean, just live life. Just keep it going. You're doing what you need to do. That's the way you want to live your life. Now, look at verses 42 through 44, and here we're going to see that we must act on what you do know. Act on what you do know. Look at verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, there's the thief again, he would have stayed awake and would not have left, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Act on what you do know. Here's what you know. He is coming. So he says, stay awake. He says, know this. There is something you're supposed to know. You can't know the day or the hour, but you can know this. He's coming. He says the analogy here is if a man had an appointment with a thief. Sounds ridiculous. But if you knew when the thief were coming, you'd stay up to greet him, wouldn't you? With a nice little thing in your hand, you know, of various sorts. You'd be there to, make, to keep the appointment. But you don't know when he's coming. So if you're a guard of the house, you stay up all night. So you're ready all night long. He's saying the same thing to us. If we knew, if there were an appointment, a day and an hour, we could just be sure we got ready for that day and the hour. But you don't know. And I think this is the reason we don't know. So we won't do something foolish like that. We'll just live in light of His coming someday and have our whole lives blessed because our whole lives will be ready. And that will have us in a blessed condition, as we'll see in a moment. And he says, just stay awake. If you know a thief is coming, you don't know what time, stay awake all night. If you're sons of the day, like we are, and you know he's coming back someday, stay awake. Be alert. And what does that mean? Well, you see a counterexample of this, of course, in Gethsemane, when Jesus asked the disciples to stay awake and pray with him, and they, they couldn't even keep their eyes open. I'm sure we wouldn't have either. They were exhausted. Uh, they were so afraid. I'm sure their adrenaline was running. But they were just exhausted. They fell asleep. But what does it mean for us to stay awake? It means to be looking for Him and to be longing for Him, both of those. Your eyes are up. You're seeing the world around you in view of heavenly realities. You're connecting in your mind always. Heaven and earth, they go together. You're putting the two stories, uh, really the three stories, the underworld too, but you're putting the three stories of existence together all the time as you think about your life. You're living in view of a three-story universe, not just a one-story with just what you see and hear. 
and then you're longing for him to come back. You actually want him to come back. And you know how that is. If uh, your wife goes off on a trip and she's gone for a week and she comes back at the airport and you forget to pick her up. <laughs> Anybody ever done that? I'm, I'm talking about your former wife. Well, that feels really great, doesn't it? She's been away and, you know, the house is a wreck. You forget to pick her up at the airport. Man, you got yourself a bad month ahead of you. And some of you have had that treatment. You've been away and come back and nobody's home. There's no banner out front. Welcome home, daddy. None of that. And you know how that feels. And what, what Jesus is teaching us, that we're to be ready all the time, looking and longing for him. So that when he comes back, he does have a banner. And our lives are the banner. We're the letters of Christ, as Paul says. We're waiting for him. And he will have a welcome when he comes. Because there will be a mighty cheer going up from the church. Now, he also says, not only stay awake, but secondly, verse 44, be ready. Be ready. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, in 2 Peter 3, we get a classic description of what this readiness is like. This is on page 2423, 2422. Look at this, at this with me for just a moment, 2422. 2 Peter 311, after describing the earth the, uh, passing away in fire, he then just simply asks a simple question. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that would be the, the earth and the heavens, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So he says it's lives of holiness and godliness. There you have it. That's what it means to be ready. And you also can see, turn over just a, a page uh, or two into 1 Peter chapter 4 and uh, go back to the left. And there in verse 7, you see a similar sort of statement. The end of things is at hand, therefore. Okay? So Peter's going to tell us what, it, what the implications are for the end of the world. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, look at this. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me summarize this in just four, four recommendations for how to get ready. Number one, you must be reconciled with God. You're not ready for Him if you're not reconciled to Him. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, that by nature we're brought into this world not as friends, but as enemies. That's the way sinners are described. We're told that Christ died for his enemies. Paul says, while we're yet enemies, Christ died for us. So we come into this world as children of wrath, as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2. So we are sinners 
and we have sinned. And therefore, we are out of sorts with God. We are under His judgment. You've got to get reconciled. How do you do that? You call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice on Calvary was made for a substitutionary atonement for sinners. So God's wrath falls upon Him. You just simply put your trust in Christ and all the judgment that belonged to you at His coming has already fallen upon Jesus Christ. And the righteousness that Christ earned by His righteous life is imputed to you simply by trusting in Him. So you're covered, you're clothed, you're cloaked with the righteousness of Christ. You're now reconciled. That's what it means to be reconciled. All your sin is expunged. All of it. Forever. And you have a total breastplate of righteousness. You have all the righteousness of Jesus Christ on your account. Now you're fully reconciled. Don't think, and you can't really think about His second coming if you're not ready and reconciled and pure before Him positionally. Secondly, be reconciled in your relationships with others. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter. Be reconciled to each other. Live every day ready for Jesus to come back. And some of you right now have some relationships that are crosswise and you've contributed to that in some way. Now, all of us have relationships that are crosswise, every single one of us. Uh, But in some of those cases, there's not anything more you can do about it except pray and wait. But some of us have relationships that are crosswise and there is something you need to do either to confess the sin that you contributed to the conflict or make restitution for some damage that you did or make an apology for something that was wrong. Uh, If there's anything like that to live in a ready state, you want to be sure you do your part in seeking to contribute to the reconciliation of the relationship. Thirdly, You simply want to walk with the Lord. And that's what Peter says in 2 Peter. There's holiness and godliness. What is holiness? It's being set apart for His service. What is godliness? It is being like God Himself in your character. You simply want to walk with Him, which means you're going to destroy the other idols. You don't want Jesus coming back and finding all the idols tucked under your bed. Those are called playboys back in my day. Uh, Or any other idol. A bank account that's over here that was just made there to make you feel important or to make you feel more secure than you should be trying to feel or to just seek pleasures that are really beyond the boundaries of what's appropriate. Some bank account that's, that's unemployed in the kingdom of God. You want, to come, you want Christ to come back and you have laid aside some resources selfishly, not engaged in His kingdom. You, you want there to be some uh, greed idol uh, that he, He's going to uncover as soon as He comes back? Get rid of all your idols. Walk with Jesus Christ. And lastly, remember this. If we're really ready ourselves, we want to help other people get ready. If we believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back and judge all the world, we need to be sure that we're evangelizing the lost to the best of our ability. We're living in light of a real return. And there is a similarity here to someone being in a burning building, and we've seen the heroic things that people will do. I was just in Boston this past week. We've seen heroic things that people will do and the caring and the compassion that people give when they know there's a real emergency. I don't know if you saw the website, but someone sent it to me with all the people in Boston who offered a bed in their apartment or their house for anybody at the Boston Marathon who needed it. It was an endless list. I never could get to the bottom of it. People who had put their, their beds on the website and offered free 
housing. Wonderful. We do all kinds of things when we know the emergency is there. Here's what Christians know. The biggest emergency is coming, and we don't know when it's going to come. And there's only one way to be ready, and that's to get reconciled to God. That's the reason Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we plead with you to be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors of Christ, pleading with men on the sake of, for the sake of Christ to be reconciled. Now, lastly, thirdly, we've, we've seen that the weight of Jesus' words is unalterable, and the date of Jesus' return is unknowable. Let's look at verses 45 and 51, and we'll see that the fate of Jesus' enemies is unthinkable. Picking up on where we just left off. Let's look at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, first of all, let's talk about the faithful servant. The faithful servant will be blessed. Now notice that Jesus uses the word servant or deacon or minister. You can interpret that word any of those three ways. A servant's a good interpretation. But as a minister of the gospel, using the word the way we use it today, I'm particularly sensitive to this. And I think that this is Jesus' intent. When he uses the word servant, you notice he's going to talk about good servants and wicked servants. But they're all servants. That means they have an assignment in the house. They have an assignment uh, on his property. It seems that he's talking about Israel. It seems that he's talking about the visible church is the point I'm trying to make. Now, the reason I say that is the word servant, but also you may remember earlier when we talked about the context of Matthew or Matthew's general intent. Matthew cites Old Testament scriptures more than any of the other synoptic gospels and certainly more than John. And he says over and over again, this is to fulfill what was said by the prophet, da 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 da, da. This was to fulfill the scriptures, da 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 So he gives his audience more explicit fulfillments of Old Testament scripture than any other gospel account. Why? Because he's writing largely to Jews. He has largely a Jewish audience. And you'll, that's the reason he's saying this Christian gospel is not something brand new. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's the book you've got in front of you. This is what the, the Torah is all about. That's what he's saying to them. So he's writing primarily to people who have grown up in a believing environment or in a, shall we say, church environment. You know the word church is used over 150 times in the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament word. It's not translated church in the Old Testament, but it's the same word. So he's speaking to the visible body of God's people. And within that body, you've got faithful servants and you've got unfaithful servants. So really, the contrast that's being drawn here is not between the visible professing church and the unbelieving world. Now, that's true. Jesus is going to come back and judge the whole world. 
But the focus here seems to be particularly upon his judgment of the visible church. Now, within that church, first of all, you have the faithful servant. And who is the faithful servant or the faithful minister? Look at what he says. He is the one whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. So here's what the faithful servant does. He looks at the other servants and he gives them their food when they need it. What does that mean? It means he satisfies their hunger and their needs. So you've got material food, you've got spiritual food. So we're all in the family together. And the faithful servant is the one who's looking out over the visible church of, of God and saying, what are the needs here? How can I serve these people? And he's also thinking about their spiritual needs. And so, of course, as I've said, those of us who are teachers, some of you teach Sunday school, some of you lead small groups, some of you preach on the Lord's Day on occasion, some of us regularly, here you have a servant. What's a faithful servant? He gives them food. Now, look what he says about what happens to these people. They're blessed. How are they blessed? Well, uh, you can look in Ephesians 1 and you'll see every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms comes to us. But here he says the future blessing. Now he's going to take us into the return of Christ and the blessing of faithfully ministering God's word and God's resources for the welfare of his family. The reward is you will be put in charge of all his possessions. Now let's see, what does he possess? <laughs> it's, it's a, it's beyond my imagination what he possesses. How many galaxies do we have? About a billion? I mean, there are a billion stars and a billion galaxies. I mean, and that's just what we think is out there. There's probably a billion times more than that. Who knows? He owns it all, and he's going to put you in charge of it. I'd say that's, that doesn't sound like a very reasonable reward, does it? It seems like he's kind of, you know, overdoing it a little bit. <laughs> you know, just for your little faithfulness, he's going to give you the galaxies? Yes. I know. It's unreasonable. It's completely unfair. There's no relationship between what you do and what you're going to get. That's how gracious he is. And so you're not going to get it because you deserved it. Come on now. Uh, the best teacher of you, you didn't deserve it. In fact, you would even say, wouldn't you, that the reason you teach is because you get more out of it than your students do. Every teacher says that. He's the one, she's the one who gets to learn and grow and develop and learn, learns more about the Bible because she's teaching or he's teaching. So we, we get enough reward in this life spiritually to make us happy. But he's saying if you'll minister, if you'll share, if you will build up the body of Christ and care for them, the reward that's out there for you is beyond your ability to imagine what he's stored up for us. That's the promise here. It's absolutely enormous. Now, secondly, look at verses 48 through 51. Here we learn that the wicked servant will not be blessed. The wicked servant will be cursed. Now, once again, remember he's talking about servant. So he's talking about someone inside the house. He's talking about someone who goes by the name of God or we would say someone who goes by the name of Christ, but is not faithfully serving. What does he say this person does? He beats his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. So you can say he ignores the needs and he abuses and withholds resources from the servants. And he goes out and just entertains himself and does what he wants to do. 
Folks, this is a, an awesome set of verses for those of us in this room who claim to be Christians, who have made a profession of faith. Some of us may not have, but for those of us who have made a profession of faith, this is a, this is a, a verse that ought to get our attention. He's saying we've been declared servants in the house. The question is, how are we serving? And when Jesus comes back to judge, he comes first of all to judge his church. And there's going to be a division, first of all, within the visible church. There's a division among all of humanity, but there's a first of all a division in the church between those who really believe him. And if they really believe, they are living in light of his promised return. Or they say they believe, but they don't teach it, they don't live it out, and their life doesn't reflect it. And those are called hypocrites. Anybody, or I should say everybody, scorns a hypocrite. You don't like hypocrites in your profession. We don't like hypocrites in politics. People who say one thing and do another or say one thing and really believe another just to get votes, those are hypocrites. And we don't like spiritual hypocrites either. But the church has always been plagued by hypocrisy, unbelief in the church. That is, we say we believe, but we really don't. It's been plagued with that ever since the Garden of Eden and ever since God graciously gave us a church. There have been hypocrites. And what Jesus is teaching is there's going to be a sound judgment given here. Jesus has not been fooled. A hypocrite can fool us. I've been fooled before. Jesus is not fooled. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. And what he's saying is going to happen is that these folks will be judged for their hypocrisy. And they will, two things here at least, cut in pieces. And that means, of course, they're going to die. And then put him with the hypocrites will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That means damnation. So there's death and damnation for those who say they believe and they don't really believe. And I have to say to you that as I look at the American church, there is hypocrisy from one end to the other. There's hypocrisy in the conservative church. There's hypocrisy in the liberal church. In the conservative church, people want to conserve traditions. And so they find the best way to do that is to get in a conservative church. Maybe well, the Bible's taught there. Maybe they go, mm-hmm. Maybe they're saying a lot of amens. But their lives at home have not been affected whatsoever. In the liberal church, they say they're Christians, but they deny some of the core doctrines. They deny the visible bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They don't believe the miracle of His resurrection. Neither do they teach people how they can have faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. They don't teach people how to be converted. They don't believe in the miraculous. They say they're Christians but they're denying the power of the Christian faith. There's going to be judgment on both the conservative church and the liberal church for those who have been faking it. So it doesn't matter whether so much whether someone else believes that we really believe. What matters is, do you really believe? Because if you really believe, God knows it. If you really don't, He knows that too, no matter what motions we go through. And He's basically saying that those who really do believe will be caring. You can see them. They will be caring for the servants, the fellow servants, by helping them with resources, material and spiritual. They will be sharing resources and they will be sharing the Word of God with them. And they will be sharing the Word of God in a way so that they too can be ready for the second coming. That's what we're getting in this text and it's awesome. We want to be sure that we stay awake and that we are ready 
and in our readiness that we are informing those around us of the day to come. People will call us Chicken Little. (laughs) They'll call us Noah. They'll call us crazy. But here's what we believe. Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, he is going to bless his faithful people beyond what they could possibly have believed in this life. Their imagination could not run that far to imagine how much he's going to pour out upon them and that he's going to judge those who are using the church, using the name of Christ for their own self-indulgence just so that they could go around once and get the most out of it. There's going to be a severe judgment for them. So as we leave here today, let us remember the firm foundation of Jesus' unalterable words. Heaven and earth may pass away, but his words, these words, will never pass away. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we would look and long for your return. We ask that you help us stay awake and be ready, not in a nerve-wracking, anxious sense, but in a peaceful, tranquil, confident, and eager sense. Grant us your peace and your grace. Enable us to be the messengers of the returning glory of Jesus Christ. Help us to encourage others to look up and not just around in order to live life meaningfully. And Lord, we as the assembled people of God this morning in Amen Bible Study, lift up our hearts and say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and glorify yourself and all your people with you. We make our prayer, Lord Jesus, in your matchless name. Amen.